You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Since 2001, we've started the new year as a church always the same way. First Sunday of the new year, we look at a memory verse. Uh, But it might be helpful to know that what's my desire, my prayer, as you think back in the different verses we've learned. And even if you cannot recall every single verse that we've gone over, hopefully there's phrases that will be drawn to your attention during times of need. But there's two criteria that I'm often looking for. One would be, uh, through prayer, finding a verse that, that meets all of us at some point where we are right now spiritually but also a verse that over the course of the next 52 weeks, we will find ourselves growing into as well. So both relevant right now to us, but also a verse that we're going to find when hopefully we look back and say, you know what, I kind of knew that verse, but but now I really know that verse. Uh, And that's led me to Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. And it's something very interesting about the book of Psalms. For those that are familiar, know the title itself refers to like a song or a hymn. Although, as you'll see with Psalm 19, it's both a hymn and a prayer included in it. But but there's an attractive element to the book of Psalms. And if you haven't found this out already, all you need to do is look through church history and, and hear some of the praises that individuals have said about the book of Psalms. John Calvin was not shy at all to speak of what he thought of the book of Psalms. He said that the book of Psalms is an anatomy of all parts of the soul. In other words, if you, if you want to look at what, what life is like, just read the book of Psalms. But then he went on to say, not only is it an anatomy of all parts of the soul, but he would say that within the book of Psalms, you find every possible human emotion held up to us as like a mirror so we can all relate to the different emotions and wrestling that the book of psalm presents but then in the 20th century of walter brueggemann an old testament scholar who he commented that the book of psalms is all about the realities of life but then he said this that in the psalms you find kind of these three dimensions woven through different psalms you have disorientation orientation and reorientation in other words they cover times in life where you feel very disoriented Uh, what you would expect is not what's happening or as some of us know suddenly something changes everything in your life and then as you weed through the psalms you find they bring us back to reorientation where's god in the midst of this and so what i'd like to do this morning to help us kind of better consider what we find in not just our memory verse but in this psalm is to consider that psalm 19 is all about how god is continually speaking and so the question that is relevant for you and for me is not does god speak but are we listening and in order to answer the question are we listening we need to consider what are the two ways that this psalm holds up for us in terms of how God speaks continually. Uh, And so look with me at verse 1. 
Uh, you'll notice that this psalm falls really into two halves. The first half, verses 1 through 6, is all going to present to us that God speaks through his creation. That God speaks through his creation. And there's a phrase that we often give this in theological studies, and that is the general revelation of God. Here, here is how God speaks in a very broad, general, indiscriminate way to every single person on earth. And so you notice how verse 1 begins. It says, the heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now you're going to find something very interesting. In the first six verses, there's just one title that's used of God. To emphasize him as being the creator, you have the simplest Hebrew title for God. And it's rendered in English as God. In Hebrew, it's just two letters, L, E-L, that, that he is the mighty one. What's very interesting is the psalmist here sort of leads us to believe that, yes, here's this general revelation of God, but it's not complete. It, it tells you some very important things about God, about him as the creator. But there's another component that we'll see that the rest of the psalm relates to in verses 7 through 14 that is critical if you're going to have a complete knowledge of God. But let's look at how does God speak through his creation. Well, you notice in verse 2, it goes on and says, Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Notice that phrase in verse 2. Uh, the creation pours forth speech. Think of it as uninterrupted conversation where God is shouting out proof of his existence. In other words, physical creation provides us with the information and knowledge of God's eternal power and divine nature. None of us got up this morning and think, I, I did a really good job making the snow. Or, oh, the sun's coming up. I'm really glad I made that happen today. No, we, we are humbled when we look around us. And notice the way that the, the psalmist David puts us. Think of his early years as a shepherd, certainly spending time outdoors, both during the day and at night. And he speaks of all of these things are uninterrupted. God speaking and saying, I exist. I am over all this. I created it all. I called everything into being. And in verses 3 through 6, he puts it in a very poetic way. It's a speech in a language that everyone can understand. In other words, it's available to everyone. Unlike spoken languages that might be unique to a certain region, a dialect that's known only in one region, not outside another, that is not true of how God speaks through his creation. And he uses the illustration of the sun and, and puts it in a very simple form of, you know, the sun comes up on one side. And almost as if like a, you notice it uses the analogy of a, of a bridegroom or bride chamber, almost as if how a, a one who is married comes out of the bedroom, wakes up in the morning, 
and that's the sun. It comes up, and then it goes down. And if you think about this, the repetitiveness of God's laws of nature, their consistency, is what allows science to exist. Science is all about studying what is observable and repeatable. That would not be possible if you had a God who was not a God of order and design. So in a very simple illustration, the psalmist reminds us, here's how God speaks. And what does he tell us about himself in this? Well, I mentioned that it's a language that is known to all in that all should be able to hear this. But scripture tells us there's a major problem. That this language that is so clear and so articulate throughout the world by God because of sin is completely misunderstood and misinterpreted by all. So it both goes out to all, but because of sin, it is misunderstood by all. And to show you how this works, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, you have Paul presenting this in the very beginning of his letter to talk about the good news of salvation. He first wants to clarify that there's some, some terrible news. And the terrible news is that all stand without excuse for not worshiping God as they should. In other words, dovetailing with Psalm 19, God has spoken, does speak continually through creation but humanity, wrapped in sin, completely ignores and suppresses that message. So look at me at Romans 1 and verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Looking at Psalm 19 in Romans 1, 18 through 20 as bookends, you see the reality, this deafening testimony of God's existence is suppressed by the sinfulness of man. And the word suppressed is an interesting term because you cannot suppress something that you don't have. So in other words, God gives mankind the evidence that he exists, but yet he pushes that down. He refuses to acknowledge that. Listen to some of the very well-outspoken atheists today who simply will look at creation and, and cannot deny that there is design in creation, but then would follow that and say, but there cannot be a designer. Like looking at the evidence, but just saying you, you can't say there's a designer, even though all the evidence is pointing to that. And so we see that God speaks through his creation. But the reality is, in this psalm, David's used just one title in the first six verses. Why? Because as clear and as accurate as the evidence and pouring forth continually from general revelation of God's existence, 
it does not give us a complete understanding of God. In other words, creation tells us God exists. He's all-powerful, but it doesn't tell us really anything about his love. It doesn't tell us anything about how to have a relationship with him. And so now you see the second part of this psalm turns and says, the only way to know God is by God's grace because God speaks to us through his word. And this is what we might call special revelation. In other words, how does one get to know this God? Only through God's grace and how God speaks to us through his word. And so let's go back to Psalm 19 and now focus on verses 7 through 14. And, and as you've probably already figured out with many of the Psalms, uh, you're reading them and you'll notice that lines sound very similar. Uh, this is a technique in Hebrew poetry, synonymous parallelism. What that simply means is you have two lines and often the second line says something very similar to the first line, but only slightly differently. And that is to aid in memorization, retention, and to give specific emphasis. And that's exactly what you see now as we turn to look and say, how does God speak to us now through his word? How is this a greater, more complete revelation than just what is possible in creation that we misinterpret and suppress? So let's begin with simply his written word. So you notice in verses 7, 8, and 9, the written word of God is described. Now, at this point in time, it would be a reference to the law of Moses, that part of the Old Testament that has been completed and collected. But it's not wrong for us to assume that this holds true now for the entire completed word of God, that what is said here in microcosm applies to all 66 books that we have before us today. But you'll notice as David speaks of the written word of God and how God speaks through that word. He uses six synonymous words. And those words you can pick out, and there's two in each verse. So let's begin with verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Uh, the word law there refers to teaching or doctrine. So the law of the Lord is perfect. It's complete. Now, creation speaks the truth about God, but it only gives us a portion of God's character. It is the written word that more fully and completely reveals God to us through Jesus Christ. So the first term he uses is the law of the Lord. But then you notice the second line in verse 7 goes on and says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Statutes, another word for the law, but means more testimonies, can include the word warnings. So now we have this aspect when we think of the fullness of Scripture, uh, it testifies to something. It also serves to warn us. And it is trustworthy. How it is getting harder and harder today to trust people. Kids are being brought up to understand stranger danger. People on the internet are watching now for phishing and other things like that, that we need to be careful. Who do you trust? What sites do you trust? 
when you describe the word of God, it is trustworthy. It's firm. It's reliable. But notice in verse 8, a second pair of synonymous terms. In verse 8, we find the precepts of the Lord are right. Now, the word precepts, you can think of sometimes something written line upon line. Um, even in some settings, it can be a grammatical term for the size of the letters. In other words, there's precepts that are written for us. We, we can look at them. But the precepts of the Lord are right. They provide oversight to us. And by precept referring to oversight, the assumption is we are putting ourselves underneath them. And that's why they give us oversight. Uh, that they are right. Once again, they are true. They are accurate. They are straight. But then there's a second line that follows that. Not only are the precepts right, but the commands of the Lord are radiant. Same meaning as law, but maybe a little emphasis more on instructions. And as Tony prayed for us this morning, we are thankful that in the scriptures we have instructions. How, how to live the Christian life. Uh, what, what is right and what is wrong. Then in verse 9, this would be a term describing the word of God when he says, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. That the word of the God, when properly received, digested, should produce a humility and a reverence in us. The prophet Isaiah says that God looks at those who are marked by humility and tremble at his word. When's the last time you read scripture and trembled at God's word? When it just grabbed you that this is God speaking to you. And that can be in a very comforting way where you're just grabbed by the fact that God is giving you this promise to help you through a certain situation. It can also be the opposite, where you are gripped in deep reverence and fear that you have not been listening to God's word in this particular area of your life. And then he speaks as well in verse 9, the ordinances of the Lord are true. The ordinances of the Lord, as you see in verse 9, are true. They are sure. They are altogether righteous. They conform, they match the character of God. So there's no inconsistency, no lack of clarity between what God says and who God is. And the word ordinances means decrees can refer to what is just. So we hear lots of people today crying out about injustices. Well, how do you measure injustice? You really can't measure injustice without a God who is holy, without his word, which is holy and true. And so we see these six synonymous words describe for us the written word of God. But since we have the completed scripture in the Old and New Testament, we can easily conclude that what is said of the written word here is also true of the living word. In other words, we have, not just in the written word, but in Jesus Christ, the fullest revelation of who God is. 
And so without those, you cannot really know God. So the three major religions in the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, are the three largest religions in the world. But without Jesus Christ, you cannot know God. And this psalm is reminding us of that. Think again of, of John 1.1, which many of you can probably recite. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That title word, that Jesus Christ is the logos, that he is the communication, the revelation of God to us in the flesh. And so now we've moved from creation tells us there's a creator, but it does not tell us of the creator's love for us. It does not tell us of the full nature of this God. That is found in the written word and in the living word, Jesus Christ. So the word of God does make God known to us, and it should transform us. So if you go back through verses 7 through 9 that we just looked at, we had different synonymous terms for the word of God. Now what you find are six different phrases describing the results of that word. So look at verse 7. Since the law of the Lord is perfect, what does it do? It revives the soul. It provides renewal, refreshment. This should tell us that if, as a Christian, you are establishing a daily habit of reading the scriptures and you miss that a couple days, God does not love you any less then because you are his in Christ, but you should feel the difference in your life. You should feel a lack of closeness and fellowship with God because you're not hearing from him. You're not listening to him. Who of us here has never gone to the scriptures and walked away feeling as if we've been revived? That God has spoken to us. He's given us a promise, and it's exactly what we needed to encourage us. So one of the results of transforming results is reviving the soul. But then in verse 7, it goes on, it makes the wise simple. Um, Simple here means those who potentially are naive or immature. Could be immature in the faith. How do you grow in the faith? Not just pray about it. Read the scriptures. Put them into your life more and more. This explains why we have different ministries as a church where we study God's word. Not merely to try to fill up your schedule but so that we can study the scriptures and grow in wisdom and understanding of God. Go down to verse 8. Precepts of the Lord are right. What's the result of that? It gives joy to the heart. The term joy here is not like a superficial sort of sense of, well, your circumstances will get better if you read this, uh, but it speaks of your whole disposition being able to be in a state of, of resting and security in God. There's a, a, a Dartmouth student or graduate student that's moved out of the area, not a Christian. I've talked to them a number of different times. Um, very smart person. Uh, but I asked them a simple question, and they still told me they're trying to give me an answer. What I asked them was, what is happiness? 
And, and this has stumped them. They, they said, I'm really working on that question still. I said, that's great. Can't wait to hear from you. And I can tell they're really wrestling. They, they don't know how to describe this. And they even asked me, well, could you tell me? What, what do you think it is? Is it just something internal? Is it a state? Think of the difference. This is saying in the scriptures, it gives joy to our hearts. You can be in the worst possible circumstances as a believer, and yet you should still be able to say, it is well with my soul. Not that it's not difficult. Not that you're really wrestling with a lot of things. But it's well with my soul. But let's go on. Notice in verse 9. The fear of the Lord and the ordinances of the Lord uh, will continue to produce in us humility and reverence. They are pure. And they have a purifying or refining effect in our lives. You may have caught the fact that, as I mentioned, the first six verses, one title for God, L, simplest title, creator. Verses 7 through 14, six times the title Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. In other words, is the psalmist David trying to say to us, the only way to know God is through his word? By God's grace, acknowledging by faith what Jesus Christ has done, now you can have a knowledge, a growing knowledge of God. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens through time in the Word. Verse 10, our attitude changes towards the Word. Notice it says here, The Word is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. Uh, this may be a reference not to just honey that comes out of a, a, a comb, uh, but even a honey syrup that was known to be uh, digested and kind of seen as a, a delicacy. Uh, you know, in other words, the phrase here that he uses, more precious than gold, uh, actually is used in the book of Genesis to describe the Garden of Eden, a place where you don't just find refreshment, but, but there is tremendous value in the scriptures. So if God speaks through his creation and he speaks to us through his word, then in verses 11 through 14, you have in this hymn, now suddenly sort of a prayer, a prayer of the servant who reminds us that God's servants will love his word. If we know he speaks through creation, and he speaks more fully through his word, then we should have a love for his word. And so you see in verses 11 through 13 that God's word is to be valued for its both preventative properties and its profitable properties. Preventable and profitable. And so you see in verse 11, by them is your servant warned. Doesn't the scripture purposely give us instructions to keep us from falling into sin. We don't have to experience something to be able to know if that's right or wrong. And there are many people who function that way today. They would see, well, they can't say something's right or wrong unless they've personally done it. 
But we can be thankful. God has said, I want to prevent you from going through unjust pain and difficulty because of sin. I'm, I'm going to give you warnings. I'm going to tell you things you should avoid at all costs in your life. But as well, God's word is profitable because he says in keeping them, there is great reward. Many of you have lived long enough to be able to see the blessings and the benefits of being faithful to God's word. Not that you've demonstrated perfect obedience, but you're able to look back and see the difference between a life that is not grounded in the scriptures and a life that is. Notice in verse 12, he says, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Uh, to discern his errors is a phrase that's used in Leviticus, and it refers to unintentional sins. In other words, God's word exposes when we've sinned. And sometimes we have sinned without intending to. Maybe you've said something to someone and you thought you were joking and you found out later they were very offended by that or hurt by what you said. You didn't intend to do that, but does God's word often reveal that to us so that we can restore that and renew it? But notice he also speaks here, keep your servant from willful sins. Now this may strike us as odd. Wait a minute, you love God's word. You know, he speaks through God's word. You've just said all these wonderful things about God's word. And now you're afraid and concerned that you still might want to sin. Doesn't that fit all of us? We, we can sit here today and be like, yes, I got it. God's word tells me what's true keeps me from sin, but you also need to humble yourself and realize this is an impossible task apart from the grace of God. But as Paul would say in Romans 7, he struggles because he wants to do what's right, and yet he knows he'll often choose the exact opposite of that. And you may find that with certain attitudes you have. You know this is wrong. You're, you're going to try to work on that. And then you, you willfully do it again. So scripture is intended to help reveal and expose that so that we can be renewed by grace. But you get to the verse 14. And as I said, really 11 through 14 are more of a prayer on the part of God's servant. And in verse 14, in this reflection that God's servant should desire that their speech and their thought reflect the teachings of Scripture. Because that's what the psalmist here prays. Lord, may the, you know, may the meditation of my heart, may the words of my mouth, everything I think, everything I say, may it reflect what your word has taught me, what I know from your word. In other words, this is the goal of having a memory verse. Not just to be able to say we can repeat a verse of Scripture, but that this verse would stay with us. That as God's servants, we would find ourselves praying every day, God, take your word. May it be something I read consistently. May it be something I think about 
repeatedly. And by your grace, may I apply it. And may I even pray your word as I come before you in prayer. That's not only a great way to start a new year. It's really how we should start every day in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is everything that Psalm 119 has told us. And so as we continue in worship, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are asking that your word would do exactly what you said, that it would revive and refresh our souls, that it would expose hidden errors and sins that we have committed, Lord, that the joy of the Lord would be restored in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.